It's Mother's Day today. Now, I, I, uh, I don't like doing, what's the word for that, cheesy sermons. Hmm? Yeah, it's Mother's Day, so I got to do some service about moms, right? Or it's Father's Day, we got to do something about being a good father. I typically try to resist that. that that's, that's not the way I like to do things most of the time. But I was praying about this week, and I wasn't even supposed to do the sermon this Sunday. But someone, uh, my mother begged me to. If you love your mother at all, you'll have me, you'll let me take it out and rest this Sunday. So uh, she gets to rest. This is her, her Mother's Day gift to her. And so I was praying about it. And again, I, I just hate doing the cheesy thing. You know, if, if it's not something I believe that, you know, has life in it for that day, I want to stay away from it. And I was struggling to kind of get something. And I don't have these experiences um, often, but I went to sleep last night, probably um, around midnight. And, you know, I had an idea for what I wanted to talk about, but I just didn't really know what it was. And I figured, well, you know, I'll just nap and wake up and around 1 and, I, you know, I'll have the sermon. So I woke up at 3 o'clock. But when I woke up, I had this, like, this verse in my head. And I woke up with this verse and I pulled it up, which, which by the way, this verse is not one that's, that's just kind of in my head often. I don't even know how it got there. And I woke up with this verse and it was just it. It's something that I really feel like, uh, is on the heart of God this morning. And so as we talk about moms and mothers, the first thing we have to acknowledge as we go into the Scriptures is that the Bible doesn't have a very good track record of talking about women. All right? Can we all agree on this? Okay. In the Old Testament, there is one theme about women. Women are for what? Who can want to say? Sex. Yes, sex. But what comes from sex? Hey. Children, right? Okay. So, Children are good for... <laughs> hey, we're all adults here, right? It is a consistent theme in the Old Testament, right? So that the concept is this. In the Old Testament, you'll hear language about seed and fruitfulness, right? And this language is the concept that the woman is land. It's like land. And so her value to her husband, to her, to her family, is how fruitful she can be. Uh, how much fruit, as in children, is she going to bear? And so uh, there are stories in the Scriptures of women who, who have no value because they're not fruitful, right? And so we have this story with Abraham and his wife Sarah and how there's a struggle between, between her ability to have children. Now, for us, we translate this as this, this kind of a space where, well, you know, it's, it's, it's painful to not have kids. Yes, you're, you're right. That is a real pain. But the bigger issue in the story was she had no value. That her, own, that her own slave had more value to her husband than she did because she could not bear children. And so this theme continues in the Scriptures. And, and basically the, the, the continual theme of, of women in the Scriptures is that motherhood is the only thing which defines their value. If you are a mother, you have value. If you are a mother to one or to six or to twelve or to twenty, that is how you rank on the hierarchy. Uh, when we hear these stories of kings and these kings who had all these women. Now, the value of the women was not the ones they had sex with. The value of the women were the ones who bore male children, okay? And the, the more male children these queens had, the more value, the, more, the higher up in the rank they went. So the Old Testament doesn't give us a very healthy view of women. It tells us something. It says that in these cultures, the value of a woman's life was measured by her ability to bear fruit, to be a mom. Now, we need to understand something. We, we have to accept that 
we have to value the role of motherhood. Who here doesn't have a mom? <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Who, the one thing, there are a few things we have in common, but the one thing we all share is that we all came from mothers. And that to a large extent, who you are as a human being is because of, of your mother and the role she played in your life. This has value. We have to value this and honor this. That's what this day is about. We honor that role. But we have to look to the other side of this as well. There's one thing that we have to allow Jesus in the Scriptures and the New Testament to speak to us about. And it's this. Motherhood does not define who you are as a human. Your ability or inability to be a mother does not define your value or your worth. The fact that you were a mother or you are a mother does not define who you are. You are more than that. And, there's, and this reality is something we really need to, to lean into. One of the things I've seen as I've pastored in the churches is that it's difficult for moms to transition in seasons. Because see, when you're a mom, and okay, all of this is me watching from a distance. Fairness? Okay, I'm, I'm not I'm speaking from experience. This is watching, okay? So I'm not the authority in this. But there is something about a season of life when you're a mother, when you have a two-year-old, a five-year-old, a 15-year-old. When, when your child is between zero and 18 years old, your life is consumed with what? Kids, mothering, parenting, right? Uh, having to drive kids there, drive them there, having to, to do this, having to get clothes for that. Your life is consumed with being a parent, a mother. But what happens when they leave the house? Who are you when you are not mothering constantly? Who are you when your children still need a mother, but they need a mom in a different way? Who are you when that season of your life is behind you? Who are you when that season of your life hasn't hit you yet? Who are you if you have had this deep desire to be a mother, but you haven't been able to experience that yet? Or even, who are you when you are in the middle of being a mother, and that's all that you actually know about yourself in that space? Again, this is from the outside looking in. It has to be very difficult to to know who you are as a person. Who are you besides being a mother? And to ask that question when you are in the middle of mothering, in the middle of life, when it's consuming you, and all that you do, you wake up. Okay, I can't speak to this. I do have an almost two-year-old, an almost five-year-old, and an almost seven-year-old. And of course, you have to say that because when they're young, they're always, well, I'm almost, right? Come on, parents. Yes, okay. So I do know what this is like. When you wake up, who greets you in the morning? Who's in your bed? Okay, kids, okay. When you're trying to go to sleep, who is it who you hear in the room down the hall when you're trying to have peace and quiet and to be an adult? Okay, who is it when you have plans and you're trying to get the work done or trying to get this thing accomplished? Kids, you know what? My stinking schedule is full of one thing right now. T-ball, Okay. <laughs> We have two kids playing ball right now, which means that my calendar is practice, pre-t-ball, t-ball. And who came up with pre-t-ball? What an awful thing that is, pre-t-ball, to hold your child's face, to stare at the ball. Whatever. 
To be a mom means to allow your life to be consumed with mothering. Now, the heart of what I want to talk about this morning is that as valuable and crucial and, and, and beautiful as it is to be a mother, every woman in this room needs to, to find, to rediscover who you are outside of that role. Because, see, there's no single role or achievement in life that's supposed to define who you are as a human being. Now, if you talk to men, they won't say, I'm a father. Most men will say they're, they're what? They're, they will tell you what they do. I'm a pastor. I'm a teacher. I'm a coach. I'm a CEO. I'm a whatever, small business owner. We will define ourselves by what we do. But when you talk to women, typically one of the first things, and again, I'm speaking in huge generalities because we kind of have to in this topic. Especially in the South, we will tend to answer, are you a mother? I'm so-and-so's mom, right? Again, this has value. This is beautiful. This is important. But we need to acknowledge something. To every man in the room who's not a mother, you need to understand something. That culture is shaped in a way in this part of the country and in this time in history it is easier for you to know who you are outside of being a parent than it is for your spouse. Do you hear me? It is a struggle for them to continue to find their own identity outside of being a parent, of being a mother. And the Scriptures speak to this. Now, in this passage, I want to talk about this passage because Jesus has a, has a really interesting habit of speaking to women. I'm not sure if you guys have ever you know, had the Gospels and you read them. Women, you need to read the Gospel of Luke. I'm encouraging you. The Gospel of Luke, he's a feminist. Okay? His Gospel starts with what? Women. And his Gospel, his gospel ends with what? Women. And his next book, the book of Acts, starts with what? Women. And it ends with what? Women. Okay? Luke sees what Jesus is doing for women. And Luke ties the knots. He connects all the things in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, we have random characters who pop up. We have this consistent theme of how this woman, she ruined the world, Eve, right? Ruined the world. She screwed everything up. You know, and so now men have to fix it. And then all of a sudden, you know, all they're good for is raising kids. But then you have these women who pop out randomly in the Scriptures and accomplish things. You have the story of Deborah. A woman who fits no box, no label. She does every role that men ever did, but she does it differently than they did. She... Whoa. Better. You threw me all off. You have Miriam. You have this woman who Moses in his darkest hours, even when he doesn't trust his brother, he turns to... Miriam, one of the three leaders of the tribes of Israel, a woman whose prophecy and, and whose acts are the ones that are predicting what God is going to do before Moses even connects the dots. You have this one, this one character, and I have to be careful with the names. I'm going to mess it up. Huldah. Who's ever heard of Huldah before in the Scriptures? No one? Okay. Um. When King Josiah is searching for clarity in the future of Israel, he has the chance to go to all these famous prophets. He can go to Jeremiah. 
He can go to Ezekiel. There's all these famous prophets who are right within his grasp. He doesn't turn to any of them. He turns to woman. He turns to Huldah. And he asks her, what is God speaking to you about the future of our people? And then you go to the New Testament, and you have all these different roles. And you know what? Did you know that there's a deacon in the New Testament Scriptures? Do you guys know that? I saw a lot of hands. A female deacon, her name is Phoebe. There is a financer of the kingdom. Her name is Mary, which means she bankrolls the whole thing. Come on, think about this. Okay. I mean, think about this. The ministry of Jesus is bankrolled. She's got the check. A woman. Did you guys know there's a female apostle in the Scriptures? Did you guys know that? Her name is Junia. Now, depending on the translation of your Bible, it might be translated to Junius, which is the Roman way of putting a masculine title on it. But if you guys have a good translation, (laughs) it's turned back to Junia, the first female apostle. And did you know who was called the apostle to the apostles? Do you guys know who that is? Mary. Mary is called the apostle to the apostles. She is the first preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you go back into your gospel accounts, who is the first one to preach the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? A woman. She's also the first one to not be believed, by the way. By all the what? All the men. Okay, you got it. There's a long, consistent string of this in the Scriptures. You tend to have these... these, these, these movements, these themes that seem so consistent. And right in the middle of these consistency, it's all about the men. God's going to save the world through a man. All of a sudden, there's a woman. And then there's men, men, and then there's a woman. And these women do not fit. And if you begin to see what the Scriptures are doing, the Scriptures are setting us up. There is a setup taking place. They are preparing us for what Jesus is going to create in the new kingdom of God. And when Jesus begins to operate, he begins to start his ministry, some of the most controversial moments, the moments where he begins to describe what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like, it involves what? Women. The way he speaks to them. The way he eats with them. The way he separates time for them. The way he liberates them. And the way he defends them. So in this passage here in Luke, I want to see a couple things. The first thing is this. We see bondage. In Luke. Now, depending on the way your, your translation kind of frames the word, it'll say a sickness, she has an infirmity, uh, an illness, or it could say she has, she's under bondage. Now, to be bound is what? To be, to be tied, correct? Now, the reason that the translators are using the word bondage here is because they want us to understand this isn't something that just happens to someone. Do you just happen to fall into handcuffs? Come on. Do you just happen to, you know, you wake up and you trip and you just fall into being hogtied, correct? Someone has to do it to you, okay? To be bound means that someone else is binding you. Someone else is restricting you. Someone else is at work actively trying to harm you. And so it's possible to be sick. It's, it's, it's possible, you know, to be ill and for it just to be, if you want to say, chance or something. But in the Scriptures, the words here are very clear. There is a, a binding taking place. And the reason this language is consistent is because this language was used every time the authors want you to understand that this is not by chance. This is the work of Satan. 
Now, in the scriptures, human beings have one primary role. We are image bearers. Um, think of it, it's like an, uh, an image bearer in the scriptures. It's like taking a rock and you're sculpting something out of it, right? It's like creating a sculpture. You're trying to create a sculpture that looks like something else. And so man, and when I say man, I mean the human race is created to be an etched out of stone, out of dirt, okay? A sculpture, a reflection of what God is like. Now what this passage in in Genesis, when God creates man in his own image, he creates the first man which Jesus is an image, and we'll break that all down. And the first man is what? Fully masculine and fully what? Feminine. Both in one. The full reflection of God must include both man and what? Woman. The full reflection, the full image of who God is cannot be contained if the only images being revealed are masculine. You know what's interesting about this, this chapter in Luke? If you guys flip down in chapter 10, Read the last paragraph in chapter 10. This is Jesus stepping into a feminine role. Jesus, he, he's walking to Jerusalem, and he, and he begins to weep over Israel. And he says, oh, how I wish I could, I could bring you to my bosom the way that a mother hen would. What, what's taking place here? The image of God, who God fully is, is being revealed, and it cannot only be revealed and understood if you only look to man. Woman holds the other half, the other revelation of who God is and how to relate to Him, how to know Him, how to connect to Him, how to, to, to relate to the very essence of God. And so right after Jesus liberates this woman, He reveals the value of, of the role of woman in revealing the identity of God. You cannot know God if you do not fully embrace the image of God in woman. This is what's hidden in this text. And so with bondage, you have to understand, every act of Satan, every single time that the, an image bearer of God is bound, is, is held back, is limited. This is an act of Satan. This is demonic work to hinder the image of God from being revealed, to hide who God really is. In the garden when Satan is, is at work and he's, you know, he's sowing his lies and doing his thing, what is he doing? He is hiding. He is covering who God really is. When he convinces them that God would, would hide good things from them and, and, that, and that he would lie to them, what is he doing? He is covering over who God is. He does not want us to truly see who God is. Now, in this passage in chapter 10, it's interesting. It, normally, when Jesus goes to heal someone, to, to free them from bondage, they name the Spirit. They describe what the work of Satan is doing, but in, in this passage, it's left open. And the only thing it tells us about it is that this spirit has come from Satan. It has kept this woman bound for 18 years. The same thing from the garden is happening here. Satan is trying to hide, to hide the true identity of God, to keep it concealed. The reason Jesus is coming to liberate this woman is not just for this woman. This is what Jesus is doing for women. Jesus operates consistently in the Scriptures to begin to break down 
the limitations, the bondage of women. And to be bound is this. To be bound, it looks like a loss of choice, possibility, or freedom. To be bound is to be unable to see a way out, to have lost the strength to fight. Now, the definition of bondage is this, a state of being a slave. Bondage, the state of being a slave. To be bound by Satan is to live and breathe and move and operate, and everything inside of you, your ability, your intellect, your gifts and abilities are are suppressed and used for someone else's will. All you exist to do is to meet the needs of others. Now, I'm not trying to draw too strict of comparisons here. I'm just going to just float this out there. Are there any moms who ever felt like slaves before? <laughs> no, this is not what the passage is talking about, but it's just fun to talk about that. There is a place in your life where the God-given honor and power and calling to be a mother can be twisted and used by Satan to turn you into a slave where a a, a powerful, freeing call of God to nurture, to protect, to raise up children can be used by Satan to bind you up. That a call of God on your life that's going to help define who you are as a person and what you bring into the kingdom of heaven or on the earth is going to be used to steal your very identity. If If you haven't learned this yet, the places that Satan is most at work are the places that are the most holy and the most sacred. There's no place in your life that Satan is, is at work more than in your marriages. There's no place he's at work more than in your relationship with your children. There's no place he's at work more than the most sacred places God calls us to because those are the most vulnerable. The places where we're the most open to attack and to hurt. The places where our emotions are the most deeply attached. Motherhood has been used against many of you in this room to make you forget who you are. Now, the second description that takes place in the Scriptures, the first one is bound. That this woman has become a slave. She has been actively tied down, hindered from being what God called her to be. The second thing is this, bent. It describes her as being bent over, being, being hunched. Now again, what's crazy about this description, it, it almost looks like a prisoner, right? You can almost picture someone in chains just kind of in a cell. But in, the, in language, to, to be bent, to bow. So if a king comes in, okay, you do what? Bow, correct, right? In the Scriptures, there's language about bending the knee. Or if you guys watch that sinful TV show on HBO, to bend the knee, everyone's trying to hide it. I know who watches it. <laughs> to bend the knee, right? It means to submit, correct? It means to cease to resist. I'm going to acknowledge that you are greater than I am. Now, in this passage, bending, her being bent over, is not just a symbol of her submitting. It's not just a symbol that she's been broken. It's a symbol of something else. Because see, what takes place in this, when someone has been broken on the inside, when someone is bent over, something has been lost. How about this? How does a... Okay. You've all got this person in your life. 
Who is the person who is just the most proud butthole you've ever met? Okay, just picture them. If you're talking about me, don't do that. It's not fair. Okay? How do they walk? Right? How do they walk? Right? They walk in the room like they own the place, right? How's it going, guys? Right? To stand upright, erect, is a sign that, that you believe you have worth. Is a sign of value. I have value. It's self-esteem. To carry yourself like this is a sign of brokenness. me. You have lost your identity. You have lost your value. For her to be bent over means that she hasn't only lost her mobility, she's not only bound, she's not only held back from something, but something's been stolen from her, her dignity. Her very understanding of her worth has been broken from her. She has lost the identity of who she is in God. Now what's powerful about this is, is how Jesus responds to this. The way that Jesus responds, the first thing Jesus does is he calls her out. And after he calls her, he touches her. Now, in the Scriptures, I want you to notice in the Gospels, every time Jesus touches someone, Jesus didn't need to touch anyone to heal anyone. Do you understand that? Touching was not required for healing with Jesus. All right? The one that the Apostle Paul and Genesis tell us was at present at creation. He was part of speaking all creation into existence. Okay? And so the reason that this is the narrative is because every time he touches, he touches for a reason. Touching is a sign of intimacy. It's a sign of understanding. It's also a sign of humility for you to stoop yourself down to someone else. When someone is crying, do you hug them like this? You shouldn't. <laughs> okay, that's not very helpful, right? You, you, you try to get down with them, right? When you're trying to connect to a child, you don't, hey, kid. Of course, I don't really get to do it anyway, but you understand. You know, all, all you guys here are tall. You don't just do this, right? You get down on their level. You stoop. Jesus is entering into the place of brokenness, to the place of bondage. He is entering it. Every time He stops, He speaks, and He touches. That is what Jesus is doing. He is calling out something that is wrong. We call this injustice. This should not be. And every time Jesus addresses it, He is saying this, when I am king in my kingdom, this will not happen. And when he calls her, he calls her by something specific. He calls her a daughter of Abraham. Now, there's all sorts of things in this that I want to talk about. We don't have time for all that. But the one thing I want to hit on is this. The first step of being freed, the first step of being, having the bondage broken off of your life is allowing God to return you to your identity as a child of God. Now, that can sound very trite and kind of childish, even in, um, even in the phrase. Think about your children as they've grown and gotten older. What's amazing with me, with Jude, he's almost seven now. And with Jude, it's amazing that even though he's so different, I mean, he's seven. He's different than he was when he was seven days old, correct? Okay. But what I love the most about watching him grow is that even as I see these new parts of who he is, and he, you know, just kind of blossoms in front of me, I can still, like, when I see something new, I can still say, hey, I saw that in him when I was still holding him in my arms. Like that part of his personality, I've never seen it this way. But now that I see it, I've seen it somewhere else. 
There's something about being a child. When you are a child, all of your potential, everything of who God's created you to be, all of your identity is just sitting there. It is raw. It's unformed. It is, even though it's unformed, even though it hasn't taken shape yet, it's still present. It hasn't been stolen from you. It hasn't been destroyed. It hasn't been tarnished. It hasn't been put down or made fun of at school. And it, you know, it, the dreams haven't been stepped on yet. Everything as a child, all of who God's created them to be, the possibilities of who they are, it's still fresh. You can still see it. What's powerful about the image of childhood is in the Scriptures that childhood harkens back to creation. Because, see, when God created the earth, the first thing that the, the creation narrative tells us is that the first thing that takes place is He looks at the potential. Meaning, He looks at this earth that was void and without shape and form, but, but all the potential was there. Meaning, everything that He created to be something, it was there. And he, the first step of creation was to see it, to allow it to be. In the first step in recreating, allowing God to heal us and to make us whole, to bring us into the fullness of who we can be, is we have to allow God to help us see everything that's in here. And sometimes the only way for us to see who we really are is to begin to pull back the layers of who we think we are. For myself, being a pastor was one of the hardest layers I had to pull off in order to find out what it was to be a child of God. Who am I aside from what I do? How do I follow Jesus aside of how I lead a church, aside of how I study the Scriptures, aside from how I preach or how I pray for people or how I do weddings? Or Who am I aside from pastor? Who am I aside from dad? Who am I aside from husband? Who am I? Who is Devin in the eyes of God? Who does he see me as? Now, parents, flip this around. How will you always see your kids? It doesn't matter what they accomplish. It doesn't matter what their title is. If they, if they run a huge company, if they have 100 kids, it doesn't matter, right? You're always going to see them as that, as that young ball of purity and potential. That's how you're always going to see your child. And this is a healing place that God is always calling us back to. And this morning... We just want to highlight this for women. Your role as a mother is crucial and beautiful and important and valuable, but you are so much more than just a mother. And Satan wants to use your role and your sacrifice for your family, your children, and he wants to use that to steal from you who you are apart from that. And what God is wanting to do for you this morning is to help you rediscover you are more than just a mother. He wants you to rediscover your desires, your dreams, your goals, the, the giftings and abilities He gave you that have nothing to do with raising children. Who are you? Who were you before you ever had a child? Who were you before you ever raised someone? Who were you then? Because there's things that God has not done calling out of you. There are things that you are called to grow and to mature and to nurture that aren't human beings or people. There are dreams and abilities and giftings that God wants to free you to step into this morning. And so the last phase of this, this passage in the Scriptures, we go from, from bondage to bent over and broken to the first stages of freedom when He begins to, to free her, to 
to break off this bondage. He's, he's laid his hands on her. He's spoken to her. He's called her by her deepest identity, a child of promise. In the moment he does this, what does she do? She stands up. And the next thing that happens, why don't you guess? The next thing that happens when a woman stands up, what do you think happens? What happens whenever women stand up? What do men do? Sit down. I think there's a passage about that when the Apostle Paul will talk about that some of the day, right? It's, it's, anyway, so what happens is she stands up, and every time that God liberates and frees women to stand up into the image-bearing calling as humans and children of God, men, it's not because you're awful, it's just our habit, we have a way of standing against it. And so the moment that God has her stand up, the first thing that happens is that the male leaders in the synagogue begin to attack her. Of all the days of the week, why are you going to get healed today? You should just wait until it's more convenient. This is the Sabbath. It's inconvenient for God to free you because it's going to inconvenience my life. See, there's a problem. If God is going to free someone up to step into all that God has for them, others have to make room. Fathers, husbands, brothers, friends, men, this is the challenge to us. Are we going to step in the way of the liberating, healing power of God as He calls our women to more than what we want for them? Huge applaud from all the men. Amen. Now, in, in my circles, whenever I grew up, you know, again, we, we had very good intentions. But I was taught subtly that I had a calling, that God was going to do great things through me. It was going to be amazing. And you know what? Your call is so awesome. And your head is so big that we have to give you a helper to hold your head up. So she's been working out, if you didn't know. She's been trying to get those shoulders strong, you know. And so even though, you know, she had, yes, 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 God loved Nisa too, yes. Yes, she has a calling too, yeah, right. But what it really means is like, you know, here's like the big C calling, my calling. Here's like the little C calling. That's, that's hers, right? And so even though in the Scriptures and preaching and praying, I love the idea, God, you know, just... <laughs> You call Nisa into everything you have for her to do. Amen, hallelujah, be blessed. But don't mess up my schedule. <laughs> because i got a church to run. What's inconvenient is when God frees the women in our lives and then He calls us to come alongside them. It's called sacrifice, right? In the Scriptures, in the example of Jesus, we find this. The ultimate test of love is the extent to which we're willing to sacrifice for another. Are we willing to sacrifice? Are we willing to, to, to change up our lives, mess up our schedules, mess up our routines, to, make, to cut out time, to cut out money, to cut out priorities in our lives, to allow God to call the women in our lives to what God has called them to beyond just being a mother? As crucial as that is, there's a huge challenge, though. 
If the mother of my kids is called to be more than just a mom, that means that I'm called to be more of a dad. Did you hear what I said? And I wish I could be a dad from work sometimes. Hard to put your kids down for a nap at work, right? Hard to wrestle with them at the, you know. It takes us, God having to heal us, to find our value more than just what we do. And I have to find my value not just in what I do in life, not just what I do in God, but see, I cannot fully be freed up to support and partner with the women in my life to be who God's called them to be if I don't find my value in being a child of God. Because see, if I find my value in what I do, then what God's called her to do is going to challenge my value. I'm not going to be able to do what I can do, and I'm going to have to pull back. And then who am I if I don't do everything I was doing? See, when God frees people in our communities and our families, free people are scary people. Because the moment you see someone in your life who is free, who is healed, who is whole, it wakes you up to the fact that you are not yet. And you are challenged. Am I going to allow God to lead me into this as well? And so the last thing that God does is He calls women to not only be free, but to stand up to be proud, to accept the dignity and the value that they have in the kingdom of heaven. And when this takes place, there's a promise that anytime someone who is broken stands up, there will always be people around them trying to hold them down. But every time we see in the Scriptures, the moment accusation comes, the moment that, that people with good and bad intentions try to suppress, to rebind, to retie up the people God is freeing, God always shows up to defend. And I want you to read in the Gospels, how does Jesus treat, how does Jesus react every time that men are trying to bind women back to where they were? I want you to see a consistent theme. He is always the one standing in the way. Every time. And in our marriages, in our relationships, in our friendships, we as men have to be able to allow God to get into our face and to get in the way that we are not holding back the women of God in our lives. God has called them to be more than just moms. Would you stand with me? Prayer team, if you guys want to come on up. Father, we just come to you this morning, and we, we thank you for the mothers in this room. They have sacrificed for us. They have given up time and energy and, and strength and years of their lives. They've sacrificed dreams and goals and and giftings that they had, they had, they've chosen to put those things aside for a time to care for us, to invest in us. And Father, I ask that you would give us the strength this morning as sons and daughters and brothers and, and sisters and husbands, that you would give us the grace and the strength to return the favor to them. Speak to us this morning. Show us in our relationships how do we need to make room to sacrifice, to support, to partner with the women in our lives for the bigger things, for the next things you have called them to do? Father, we pray, Lord, for every woman in this room. I ask, Lord, that you would lead them into a deeper, healthier, whole view of who they are in you. We thank you for everything that you've done for them, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for them as mothers, Lord, as sisters and daughters, Lord, as, as wives. But we thank you you have more for them even beyond that. 
And we ask this morning you would begin to, to dig back up in their hearts the dreams, the giftings, the desires, the plans you planted in them years and years ago, that you would begin to bring those things to the surface right now. We speak over the women in this church family. You are free in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you. Release them. Release them into everything you've called them to do. Release them to dream again, to think again, to, to prioritize themselves again, to give themselves time again, to consider pursuing things again, to consider making themselves a priority. We ask, Father, that Grace Church would be a place that supports, that partners, that releases that touches, that prays for, that releases these women into everything you've called them to do.